the incomparable. Number 155, August 2013. Welcome back to The Incomparable. I'm your host, Jason Snell. We're here in this installment to talk about Neil Gaiman, most specifically his latest novel, The Ocean at the End of the Lane. We might also talk a little bit about other Neil Gaiman that we have read and, and thought of, but basically we're going to focus on The Ocean at the End of the Lane. And joining me in this edition of our book club to talk about it, I have two Lovely guests. Dan Morin is here, as he always is. Hello. Hi, Dan. Hello. I'll be playing the part. Pa- I know I'm playing his part tonight. Okay. Thank you. Thank I will, you. I will not speak much. You can tell me what to read later. And uh, and also David Lore is here. Hi again. Hi. You're um, back. I have, have I been here before? I, I Let me sit next to this pond and think about that. Mm, oh. Ooh. That's a book reference that you did there. Look at you. <laughs> I don't get it. So... The Ocean at the End of the Lane, 192 page. I don't know the backstory here. I don't know if, well, actually, I did read that he intended this originally to be a short story. And then it kind of got out of hand. Drew in the the telling a little bit. And if you're a famous, successful writer like Neil Gaiman, and you write something of any length that you might consider a a novella from somewhere else, your agent and your publisher say, wait, 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 wait. That's a novel. (laughs) But it's it's kind of short. It's a novel. Let's sell it. So it's it's um it's 192 pages. It's not it's even not that long in my edition. I, I according to Wikipedia, it's 192 pages. I'm I don't hold, know. You I'm know, holding whatever. a hardcover in my hand. It's 178, even shorter. Wow, look at that. So there, Wikipedia is overselling it. Whoa, whoa, you're suggesting Wikipedia is wrong about something? Oh my God, we've broken <laughs> it wide <laughs> open nuts. tonight. No, uh, the world is not as it appears, Dan. Whoa. Wikipedia is right. There are oceans that are ponds it's very strange so um i actually kind of like before we get into talking about it um i really liked reading something that was self-contained and wasn't a thousand page book that's one in a series it was really nice to read something Mm -hmm. short and sweet and i liked it a lot but also i i I liked the words a lot and i liked the number of words even more <laughs> that there weren't that many of them. It was kind of nice. Yeah, it's a story that that's it's very uh, efficiently told in some ways, which is not to suggest that it's not without its art, obviously. But art can be efficient, I think. Um, yeah. I mean, I read this. Yeah. I read this on vacation uh, the week before we're recording this, and I read it in a day. I mean, like I finished a book, uh, the previous book I was reading, and I was like, "All right, time to start the Neil Gaiman," because I brought it specifically because I wanted to read it on vacation, um, and ended up, you know, I read it in a couple like. You know, a couple setting sittings, like man, I finished it before bed, and yeah, I, I mean that is that's rare. It's been a long time since I read a book in a day. Read it in a couple settings. Read it in a in a tree, like a forest. I read it by a lake. I read it by a lake. By a lake. I read it on a cha- in a chair. All right. Uh, like in a comfy chair and a porch in in a bed. Two sittings and two settings. Uh, in a box yeah. with a fox. With a fox, yeah, yeah. With my in on my socks train, in my socks in a plane. I, I did not read it in the rain. I would not, could not read it in the rain. It's true. Anyways, yeah, I, and it was funny because I had just talked to. So I was down uh, on vacation with some of my family, and my cousin, who's a couple years older than me, is also a uh, he's a bit of a you know fantasy science fiction fan, and so he's like, "Oh, have you read have you read the Ocean at the End of the Lane yet?" I was like, "No, no, I have it on this trip. I'm, I'm going to read it." And he's he you know tried very hard not to spoil it. I actually knew very little about this book going in, yeah, despite the fact too. that I follow him on Twitter and read his blog. Like, I, I sort of got bits and pieces, but not. I did not read the book jacket or anything like that. I kind of went in unprepared, and 
I think, you know what? I think I like that. You know, I think that's something I don't do very often and it's refreshing. It's like going to a movie that you don't know anything about, right? And then you're surprised and delighted by it. Like, oh, wow, this was pretty cool. I didn't even, I didn't see a trailer or a commercial for it or anything. And it's no required backstory. You don't yeah. need to know what universe it's set in or what series it's a part of or anything like that. It's just, hey, Neil Gaiman wrote a new book. I'm going to read it. Anyways, yeah. And I have a further point about that, but I wait, I'll wait until we get into a book discussion. So noted. Yeah. I mean, I, I read it in two sittings, too, just over two nights. But how many and, settings? Uh, only only one. Mm-hmm. Only one. Do better next time. Settings next battle. time. Yeah. yeah. N- next time I'll build a set. <laughs> there you go. There you go. Do that. And yeah, I mean, I, I originally I got it just because my older son is into Neil Gaiman, thanks to Coraline and uh, the Graveyard Book. And we thought, all right, you know, we'll get this. And... Yeah, if if I get around to reading it. So when you threw this out there, I said, oh, yeah, all right, I can do that. And I mentioned it to an actor friend of mine, and he said, oh, my God, you're going to love it. I said, okay, you know, whatever. And he, and he didn't spoil it, and he wanted to. You know, it was the same kind of thing. And uh, so last night after I finished it, I sent him a message. I, I said, oh, my God. And he said, yep, there you go. And I'll tell you what else he said later, but that's part of the book discussion one of the things i really liked about this book is okay first off neil gaiman is a really good writer let's just say that yeah, well, right? he's yeah, a good that's, that's a given let's just put writer. that enter that into yes. evidence well there are a lot of successful people sure. with big fan followings i'm not naming names who are well even even somebody like george R. R. martin who has got a lot of things going for him people whose books i like we don't need to talk about like feed and things like that people whose books i like but i read them and i think well i like the ideas more than i like the actual writing right, right. neil gaiman is a good writer yeah and sometimes the words are to the you know to the service of the book but you, you don't stop and reread a particular turn of phrase for example and there's nothing wrong with that i, I there's plenty of books i read where it's like I, I like the story. I like the characters. I'm not really paying a lot of attention to the writing, but like that, that, that is sort of, that's like gravy for me. Like if, you know, and sometimes it gets in the way, like there are, there are definitely writers who try too hard to be like good, like lyrical writers. And they, that it just gets obfuscating in terms of like the story, yeah. but, but mm-hmm. his stuff is subtle and not something you, I, you know, occasionally find myself rereading sentences and then realizing, wow, that's a, that's a really, it's a really well-crafted sentence. They're not showy yeah. necessarily. No, they're no, they're un- not unadorned. showy. But they're they're to the point, and yet I think about, I look, read a sentence and I'm like, man, if I wrote that sentence, that sentence would be like super way boring, way more boring than that. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> yeah. If you wrote that particular sentence, you'd like punch the air and get up and go, woohoo. Yeah, I'd be like, oh punch my God, I'm Neil Gaiman. Yeah. <laughs> That's amazing. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, he's he's a good writer. And... um. And then I like the tone of this book. And, and I've seen there, there are similar tones in some of the other books that he's written. I, a lot of his books have, have this kind of tone. But I like that it's, you know, it starts off as a memoir. It turns into sort of a fairy tale. It never, it never seems, even when it's sort of uh, at its most scary or, or at least has the most plot complication by the antagonist of the story, it, it never... I don't know. It always seems kind of gentle. <laughs> I'll take yeah. issue with that in one particular scene, but overall, well, I think okay, I, fair enough. I think I'll see where I see where you're going. It, it reminded there, there me. Is, yes, that's true. At the core, there's a, some ugliness, but around, especially the first part of it. I mean, oh, yeah. you really essentially are reading his memoir until suddenly it yeah. becomes something that's different. But it's just it's 
I don't know. It, it was very pleasant to read it. The whole experience was pleasant in in all the settings and sittings that it took. To it did make me think that, like, you mentioned the memoir part, and like, I and knowing as much about Neil Gaiman as I did, because I have followed him for many years, and like personally, like I follow him around now, uh, because I because I've read a lot of his stuff, and because I read his blog, I know a little bit about you know his life, whatever he shares on the internet, and and so knowing that stuff, it was very interesting to read and try to figure out how much of this is influenced by. <laughs> you know, his own life, because it's mm. not hard to read into that, at least in the beginning, you know, that there's there's certainly elements of it. Sure. Um, but right. yeah, I thought that was I thought that was interesting. Well, and the gentleness is what makes those um, horrific moments stand out and mm. makes them that much more effective, too, because it's almost like he's lulled you into this just beautiful storytelling in this beautiful setting. And even when i mean the characters are doing that too right the yeah. the um the family whose name now the hemstocks right they right. they keep reassuring him too in his flashbacks that it's a, it's going to be okay just hold my hand everything's going to be fine and so not only is the writer and the tone of the book um reassuring you the characters are reassuring the the protagonist it's going to be okay. Don't worry about right. it. Just hold on. It's going to be fine. I'm not that worried. It's not going to be a problem. It's fine. And then, of and course, it's, it, it's not entirely fine. <laughs> right. Well, and it's a way of getting him through it. And even at the end, when he gets through in a different way, trying not to spoil anything, but um, again, it comes back to the reassurance and the, yes, of course, that's exactly how it went. Yes. It's okay. The The writer it reminded me the most of in the book that it reminded me the most of was uh, actually Ray Bradbury, um, Something Wicked mm. This Way Comes. Huh. Like, yeah. There's a very similar tone to that book, which is also sort of about dealing with that childhood, not quite the cusp of childhood, but like there is an element of being a kid and being exposed to these fantastical elements. Um, and, you know, I think we all... It's always interesting to read a book from the perspective of, of a child, especially like fan fantasy books like this, because I don't know about you guys, but like I end up really putting myself back in the, you know, in the mindset of feeling like a kid again and thinking about how when you were a kid, how real all of those things are to you. And so there's a lot of the book, which for me, at least the first half or so I'm reading through like, well, there's a lot in here that you can kind of you could almost rationalize in a very logical, like real world kind of way. Like, there are real-world events that might cause a child to, you know, imagine these types of things um, compounded with, you know, something bad happening, right? Like, there are traumatic events, for example, that could happen and how that might turn into a different sort of story in your head as a child thinking about it um, that are very different from the perspective of being an adult, which is why, you know, when we sort of lead into the book, it starts with the adult and then regresses back to the kid, Um for, so I, I thought that was very interesting and very well done because it, when you are a kid, all of that stuff is so real to you. Um, like, I mean, being a kid and, you know, like the idea of like a monster under your bed or something like that, right? Like that is that is a real tangible thing to you as a child in a way that doesn't really make sense to even looking back at from an adult like, oh, how could I have even believed that? But at the time, it doesn't matter, right? Like it's true as far as you're concerned because it has an effect on you. So right. I think he's great at capturing that element of, you know – how real and visceral these things feel as a child and just the idea of the unexplained. Should we uh, fire off the spoiler horn and talk Let's. about this in a little more detail? Go for it. 
Now, no, okay. so let me let me revisit something I was just saying, but in like concrete terms. Okay, yes, um, lay it on me. So you know we have to deal with the 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 fact that this 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 kid basically sees like a dead body, right? Like that's the first sort of major thing that happens in the book. I feel like, I mean, and also these really horrific. I mean, like the thing before before there's before there's real magic, right? He, he sees the the well. Oh yeah, you're right though, Dan. I mean, first off, they they kill his kitten. Yeah, that the oh god, the, man! The taxi, the cab driver comes up and kills his kitten, and the new lodger is like, "Well, got you a new cat." Yeah, like and a mean evil cat, right? A mean yeah. cat and his little black kitten that, that he was had for a few months, and that that was so sad because as I grew, I grew up with cats, and mm. we were right on the highway, and the cats didn't last very long. And I have, I, I cannot tell you how many kind of formative things in my childhood I can mark by the death of an animal like that, uh-huh. that, that, that my, you know, my cats that when they were hit by a car out in the, out in the highway, uh, just awful. And so that really hit home. And that's before even the lodger then kills himself out by the end of the lane. Right. Well, and that to me, that element, I mean, I didn't, I did not have pets going up. The closest I got was like a friend of mine got a cat, like a kitten. And his mom was like, Oh, well, you know, like you don't get to have a cat. Like your parents don't want you to have a cat, but like you can like, have like part ownership you can like come over and visit the cat and like and then they had to put the cat to sleep like two weeks later because like it was and i was like (laughs) probably a really good thing that i didn't have a cat because that would have just like broken me as a child but like i but you're he writes about it so so poignantly that you can't help that's the thing where it's like i couldn't help but feel like this happened (laughs) like it felt Mm -hmm. real (laughs) it's almost rolled dollish in a way for me too where it's like you start the story and it's like here was a boy and he had a perfectly ordinary childhood and he had a cat and then the cat was crushed by a cab driver because their parents had to rent out rooms because they're, you know, they, they didn't have the money. It's like, wow. And, whoa. And nobody came to his birthday party. Yeah. And nobody comes to his right. birthday party. Just him. Yeah. Very rolled doll. Right. I mean, I always go back to James and the giant. Yeah, that's, 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 and that's, that's and such a formative book for me. And, and, and I read some of these books and every time I get there, I get a little sense of aunt sponge and aunt spiker. And I'm like, ah, it's, you know, and then their parents were eating at the zoo. And, <laughs> and then I got some of that from the ocean at the end of the lane. And, you know, he has to give up his bedroom. It's not just, the oh yeah. Lodgers. He has to give up the bedroom that was specially, you know, it's got the wash basin, just yeah, his, just for him. And- Sleep and sleep in his sister's room. Ooh, but you see what I'm saying? Like in terms of like the effects of something that's real. Like so, you you know, you feel like with the with the dead body, and then later on, there's an, the other. I know this is skipping around a little bit, but like the the antagonist of the book, um, Ursula Ursula Monkton Monkton. Um, like you know, so she basically like his father basically has an affair with her, right? Like you can almost see that as like. And a real world event that was viewed through the life of a child. She must be a monster because she came in and broke up my family, right? Like, yep. and yep. and that's the the line that it walks that makes this so powerful for me. Is like, you know, obviously not everything is something that can be explained rationally in this in this story, but there are like little touch points of that where that line is. Very, it's very permeable for children, right? The line between reality and fantasy and imagination, and and I think that's. He does such a great job of capturing what it's like to be a small child who has that imagination, especially because I, I don't know about you guys, but like I identified with him in terms of like they talk about him reading books all the time. Right. Like that was me like growing up, like I read books like all the time. I had you know my nose yeah. in a book all the time. And that's and that's definitely how I felt at that point about like the imagining all these adventures and stories and great things that I could go off and be doing and 
And that is why it's such a such a great piece of work in in terms of bringing this character to life. And that was to call back to an earlier point that I said about my cousin mentioning this book to me. He said he he explained he was telling a friend about the book. He's like, oh, yeah, I really love this book. It's about this boy, you know, and he has this interesting experience as a kid. And he goes through some of it. And then the, his friend asked him, what's the boy's name? And he suddenly stops and realizes, <laughs> I actually wait, hold on. We're never told his name. Like, and that's, he's like, but I didn't realize it until I was actually asked about it. Like, it didn't register in my, in my mind that we're never told what his name is. Right. I, that's amazing. The framing sequence of this book, too, is that uh, he's in town for a funeral. I kind of assumed it's a funeral of one of his parents. I assume so as well, yeah. Mm-hmm. Although it's never but, made clear who. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, which I think I kind of like, and given what we see about his parents and and how Ursula Moncton in you know basically inserts herself in this family and uh, you know has sex with the father, <laughs> and uh, and the and the narrator sees that there's something going on there, and you could on one level bla- say, well, it was magic, it's not his fault, but what is Ursula Moncton's story? She she wants everybody to be happy. These horrible things that she does are all actually trying to give people kind of what they want, which is even more right. horrible. But then so so this family that's had all of this stuff, I mean, when we see the framing sequence, we're seeing that he's an adult now and presumably one of his parents has died and he's avoiding going to the reception after the after the burial by right. instead going to this this house at the end of the lane. And and then we find out that he's gone there over several and over times again through but, his life, yeah. but never, and never remembers. remembers. Which is, I mean, I literally, I uh, th- this never used to happen to me. I used to be, you know, stoic, right? All my life. I mean, I cried at Snoopy Come Home when I was seven. I cried at the end of Wrath of Khan, of and course. it's not even when Spock dies; it's when Kirk's voice goes, "His was the most human." human. Yeah, you know. And that's just okay. I'm done, right? Yeah. And uh, and I cried when they did the uh, memorial special after Jim Henson passed away, and that you know they do the big song at the end of "Just One Person Believes in You Long Enough and Strong Enough." It's like, oh God, you know. Uh, yeah. But aside from that, nothing, nothing got to me. Bambi, nothing. Old Yeller, the dog. Yeah. I've just I've All right. made this explicit <laughs> podcast. I'm sorry. Thanks. Um, anyway. It's just more editing work for me. That's <laughs> awesome. I'm mean, used it wasn't me. Usually I'm worse about that. <laughs> um but yeah, after I had children, um, I think it was we we had the first one for a couple of months and I just needed something to read. Because, you know, I hadn't read books in a while. Because you know, it's just baby, 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 all baby. And I read this uh Batman No Man's Land by Greg oh, yeah. Rucka. That's great. I it was love adapting. Oh yeah. And um and it was the adaptation of that arc in the graphic novels. And it gets to the subplot where the Joker has kidnapped all the newborn baby boys in Gotham and is gonna kill them one by one. And I'm sitting there just tears pouring down my face and going, This is a Batman novel. What is wrong with me? Right? And ever since then. I'm much more sensitive to things like that. And the end of this book, I read the last two chapters with tears just pouring down my face. Not, you know, I'm not having hysterics. I mean, it was quiet, but just I couldn't stop. And, you know, there, and it was just sort of like I described it last night as the this sort of full chest feeling of 
sorrow and joy and redemption and sadness and, you know, just all in one. And, uh, you know, the thought that, um, you know, it's almost, it's almost uh, going back to wrinkle in time. It's as if Charles Wallace didn't come back and saved the rest of them. If that makes sense. Yeah. Right. Right. Because it, 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 you're, you're right. Because, um, it's that sacrifice of the one who's who's special and has the most special talent to save everybody else. In this case, to save the unnamed narrator, and you know, so so having that echoing for me was kind of weird too. It was like, oh my god! I was thinking and, of of Lord of the Rings during when when they explain what's happening with Letty at the end of this book, where she's been attacked and is dying. And I, I think it's the, you know, it's those sea metaphors. They're in the ocean. They're going off and uh, she might be back, but the, the ocean is the universe, right? (laughs) Like she, you won't recognize her when she comes back. If she comes back. I love the, the one line that uh, I felt like I should have, unfortunately I was reading this in hardcover, so it was harder to highlight things. But uh, the one that I remembered was that the, uh, when the narrator asks her at one point, he says, what, how old are you? And she says, 11. And he says, how long have you been 11? Yeah. <laughs> what a great line. Delightful. Um, yes. But that, that's a sense for a long time. Yeah. So, I mean, her little brother is Jeffy. <laughs> yeah. Well, see, that's, I, I, I felt like Ray Bradbury, but I also got a lot of Harlan Ellison in this. Well, Neil and, Gaiman, I mean, this is his yeah. thing, right? I mean, it's that, it's that it's magical, but it's, it's, it's not it's grounded. It's yeah, exactly right. It's grounded. Yeah, in a way that a lot of the the Harlan Ellison stuff is, and I mean that's why Neil Gaiman and Harlan Ellison, I mean, I think, you know, know each other pretty well, and I mean they're oh, yeah. they're, they're very similar yeah. in 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 some ways, and very different in others. And that Neil <laughs> Gaiman seems very gentle, <laughs> and Harlan yes. Ellison does not. But um, <laughs> although I will take, as I mentioned, that one, I was reading this out on the dock at our lake, and uh, I got to the bathtub scene, and. So the scene in which his father basically tries to drown him. Tries to drown him, yeah. Um, and I finished reading that, and I closed the book and just sort of gave a visit, like a audible, <sighs> like, you know, I had to stop at that. That was like the end of my first sort of, you know, sitting, reading it, because it was just, I could, I needed to breathe after that, right? Like, it was so well done and so affecting oh, yeah. of, you know... I can't. I can't even imagine it, right? But like you know, the idea of your father trying to drown you, like yeah. it's just terrifying. And but you know that that element of being a kid and being not having control, right, and not having and something has entered your world and it's changed your world and you don't like what's happened, right? Right. I mean, fundamentally, sure. that's what Ursula Moncton is: is she's infested their house, but she's she's causing change, and it's changed that the the this boy you know, for lots of good reasons, doesn't like, but you can see the, the metaphor there. Yeah. yeah. Oh, absolutely. I just, it, but it's just, it was so affecting. I had to put the book oh, yeah. down and that almost never happens to me. Um, I almost always, you know, so like yeah, more stoic probably than David. Sorry. Uh, but like at that point, no, I, that, that was a, it was a visceral, like I need to set this aside for, you know, an hour or two before I can go back to reading it. Cause that just, that was, that was pretty brutal. Um, so can I talk about cats? We'll just we'll yeah. just turn it around. We, I want to cheer no, you guys up. Not even about I this book. It. Let's just talk about cats. The, you know, they're so soft. And no, there are some. There are cats in this book, and yeah. and it's not just the poor kitten 
and the mean cat that's the replacement for his poor kitten when the when it gets crushed but plucks in the field. But they've got the they've got the the this kitten that they find in the other you know fairy world basically where they go, and it comes back with them. And it just kind of flits around in between, and 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 it looks a lot like this kitten that he had that died. It's another black kitten, and it appears at various points. And at, at one point at the end, I think there's a, a statement about him him bringing back a kitten at some point in his, mm-hmm. I think, in his childhood. And I just I I I don't have a whole like deep meaning of what the kitten is, other than than I really liked that. There's this idea, first off, that there was this cat that was special to him and then the replacement was not acceptable. And then also that cats are, are these kind of mysterious and semi-magical creatures and they they don't even come from where you think they come from. They come from this other land where they just kind of appear. And and I, I just – I enjoyed that because it was just this element that is that recurs that was fun and – and I, I, as a, as a boy, you know, when I was a boy, I really liked cats and we had, we had cats out, out you know, cause I grew up in the country and we had lots of outside cats. Um, yeah. and so, so that really resonated with me that this is a boy who's growing up and he has this cat and, and then, and then the cats kind of recur, which is just, it's just a funny little thing. We didn't have yeah, a I pond, mean, but we had cats. We, we had, or an ocean. An ocean. We, we had three cats at any given time all through my childhood and and we I mean, we were kind of out in the country in florida but uh after after i left florida didn't have cats until i got married and moved out here because my wife was always a dog person and then we accidentally became cat owners and she just fell lock stock and barrel for cats and now we have three cats go figure so so it's just sort of like it was the same kind of thing for me it was like they're very comforting it's like yeah. this is and I like Bring that back my childhood. And I like that the idea too that cats are are you know these kind of peculiar peculiar unworld otherworldly let's say creatures. Um, mm. That's that works, right? They're oh yeah, semi magical kind of strange. They come and go. Where do they go? We don't know. Yeah, you sure. suddenly just reminded me. In I believe in Terry Pratchett's world, cats can see the color of magic, like naturally, which humans can't see. Which is inter- uh, interesting to me because, of course, Terry Pratchett and Neil Gaiman also friends and collaborators. Yeah, <laughs> but there is there is definitely that you're totally right about that. There there is something about the cats that like like children is that that line is permeable for them. Well, it's it's amazing to watch them, and and if you watch them long enough to see them looking at things, and you can't you have no idea what they're looking at. You know, are they looking at dust motes floating in sunlight? I don't know. But there's nothing there. There's nothing on the wall. What are you doing? They're reading your soul. The cat cat reaches up and slaps the wall. And you go, okay, magic. If you're just tuning in, this is the Cat Fanciers episode of the Incomparable Podcast. (laughs) It's the Cat Cast. It's a podcast about cats. It's a podcat. By cats. Podcats. Four cats. Four cats? (laughs) How many cats listen to podcasts? Uh, You'd be surprised, Dan. I probably would Mm -hmm. be surprised. Well, most cats don't, but those who uh, have jobs and have to drive a car to Please commute. tune in to my award-winning <laughs> short story, The Cat Who Listened to Podcasts. Oh, what award did that win? That It won Cat the Fancy cat Podcast cat, of the Year award. It's a cat, it's a cat-related award. I knew it. I knew it. You had to ask. Cats ask for it by name. All right. It's time for this week's incomparable sponsor. This week's sponsor is HostGator. 
HostGator.com is a premier web hosting and domain name provider. If you're looking to start a website, HostGator can help you get started with monthly hosting plans, one-click installs, and tons of other features that make getting your site up and running easy. If you're a more advanced user, a little nerdier, or a business, HostGator can take care of you with reseller plans, VPS, and even dedicated servers. HostGator guarantees, and this is a really nice number, 99.9% uptime. That's a lot of uptime. And no matter your size or needs, 99% is the guarantee. If you're a WordPress user, doing some blogging, doing some podcasting using WordPress, you're going to love one-click installs that they offer, and they have an optimized hosting platform for WordPress. When you host with HostGator, you get unlimited disk space and bandwidth. They have free site builder tools that are super easy to use, but if you find yourself needing any help, they also have 24-7 support to ensure that everything is running smoothly. So head on over to HostGator.com, that's H-O-S-T-G-A-T-O-R, like alligator, dot com, to learn more. And when you decide to buy, even though I'm not Dan personally, I'm not Dan Benjamin, I'm not Dan Morin, there are many Dans I'm not, still I want you to use the coupon code DANSENTME, all one word, DANSENTME, and get 30% off of everything. Not just 30% off of a little bit here and there, 30% off everything when you go to HostGator.com and use the coupon code DANSENTME. So check it out, HostGator.com, and thank you very much to HostGator for sponsoring The Incomparable. So one of the other things, I mean, there's 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 a lot in this, you know, less than 200 pages. I like the scene where they, um, where... Uh, Letty forms the circle, draws the circle, which is a you know good magic kind of thing to do, and tells the boy stay in here. And you know he learns his lesson right that when she said always hold my hand, and he lets go for a minute, and a you know witch worm thing goes into his foot. I yeah, I, you know what that was great about because I was reading through that and I was thinking <laughs> that. that same that same scene. I was thinking there's going to be the point where the monsters show up as Letty and try to convince him to go mm-hmm. out of the circle. I want yeah. him to be smart enough not to fall for that, and he doesn't. And I was so happy about that because I'm like, <laughs> if I can think of it, this boy can think of it, right? Like he's a smart kid. We've learned that. Like he's made mistakes, but like he's in, in you know, he sort of has bought into the world and understands kind of how things are working now. And so I liked that he he didn't leave the circle because that, in like a lot of books, that would have been like, all right, now we're off on another set of adventures. But in this one, like he learned his lesson. And he that learned was good. his lesson. He yeah. learned his lesson. Well, I just re- I was just reading um. Sand, Sandman, Preludes and mm-hmm. Nocturnes. And of course, oh, there's a key scene there where a circle yep. is accidentally... Don't uh, break those circles. <laughs> ...broken open and that it's bad things for the people who broke, break open the circle because Dream is on the inside and now he can get out. But here, this is this is his... Like, he learned. He, he, he made the mistake of letting go of her hand at the beginning. And here he knows that he needs to sit there. But what's tough about that situation and what's so interesting about it in the dark outside the house is mm-hmm. that he has to be alone and he can't make them go away. All he can do is sit there and take it. And so he's visited and he has to sit there and take it. And he has to sit and take his temptations and abuse and he and and the sort of dashing of his hopes. And he has to just sit there and he learned his lesson. And so he does. And that's what saves his life. And and one of the things that's cool is, you know, like when his father comes out and his sister comes out, you don't know if those yeah. are really them. But it could be. Right, because they could come out and be like, why are you out here in the backyard? Yeah. 
Yeah. And it was, um, was it? Or was it? <laughs> or was it? Who knows? Because they could have been under the, the under the spell of evil Ursula Moncton too. And the house, the whole thing where the house yeah. changes and the house is a threat, and you know nobody believes the whole thing where the mother doesn't believe him and the sister doesn't believe him, and and that that was again I was having those Aunt Sponge and Aunt Spiker kind of moments of just like this poor oh this poor kid he knows the truth but nobody will believe him and it, mm. it's just so uh, you know it it. It, it's a classic thing, but it's just it was so well done. I, I got to say, I really loved. There were some funny points too. Surprisingly, the part that got me that actually made me laugh out loud was the scene where his parents come to collect him from the hempstocks, and they say, imagine mm. your toothbrush, and he's like picturing it and picturing it, and I'm like, what does that have to do? And then they kind of distract you, and then like oh, they yeah. pull out the and you thanks for bringing his toothbrush, and like the father kind of puzzledly pulls the toothbrush <laughs> out of his pocket. I was like. That's a like such a good job of the misdirection and the setup right. and everything there. I laughed yeah. out loud at the like, oh, I guess I have his toothbrush in my pocket. I was like, ah, yes, I see what you did there. And that's and that's interesting magic because it doesn't play on our all the things we know about magic. Instead, they're like stitching together. They're like remitting right. reality. It's so, it's so mundane it's in not, some way, not, which is hilarious. Yeah, yeah, they're just doing their work and they're like, yeah, I, I think I can do this. I can put this together. And they're remitting the fabric of reality, but they're not casting spells or anything. At some point he says, are you you know, going to do a spell or something? And they're like, so it's like that. No, mm. we don't do that. But they, they do succeed in changing the parents' memories and 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 making the toothbrush like appear or retroactively be brought or right. whatever right. was required. It's almost like a Doctor Who moment there. Yeah. Oh yeah. One, well, I love the moment where um, he's being chased by the uh, the vultures of the void, and that you know they start to attack, and then it goes into parentheses and italics where he feels the sensation of dying. He feels the sensation of the vulture ripping his heart out. Oh yeah. And. And then, oh yeah! And then all of a sudden, it snipped, and everything—the seams came together, and suddenly he's fine, and Letty is on top of him, and he set that up so beautifully by doing the earlier thing of talking about how they stitch together things and snip here and snip there and put it back together, almost like a film. And but he doesn't make a big deal of it in that moment. It's just you have to remember that, right? But afterward, they make it clear that they basically yes. went back and fixed it so he didn't get torn up into little pieces yeah and <laughs> but it's just so beautiful yeah it's like oh oh i mean and and part of the reason i loved this and and i'll say this is maybe my favorite thing of his i've ever read um because i i like bits and pieces of american gods but i don't like american gods it's oh. just too long and and i like a nancy boys but uh and i love the graveyard book um but this is just the right length. It it really couldn't be shorter, but it really couldn't be longer. And I mean, there's no padding. There's no fat in this book. It's just everything is right there and it's done and it's just beautiful. Oh, yeah. I don't know. I've read everything. I was looking through in the front of the book where it has the also by Neil Gaiman list. I've read everything in that list that is the four adults and I've read many of the things in the for all ages they're oh. not most of the illustrated stuff honestly um mm -hmm. and i've read sandman um which is sandman may still be my favorite because i like those long epic things and sandman is is amazing in terms of its ability to weave all these you know huge amounts of genres together and it's so varied and so oh, yeah. amazing and there are there are epi there are issues of that that in my mind are almost like 
almost a perfect, <laughs> almost a perfect story in my regards. So mm-hmm. I will, but I, I love this as well. And I, I like almost everything he's written. I, I've enjoyed almost everything that he's written. Some of it, I, you know, some of it sticks better than others in my head, but I right. he's, he's amazing as an author. Uh, this is going to turn into one of those gushing podcasts. I know this. The people, the people who like us to love things, will love this episode. The people who like us to tear things apart will be very sad. Um, I, I did not like American. No. I love, I loved American Gods. I thought yeah, I liked American, American Gods, Gods was great, and I, I didn't think it was. Too- I, I liked it. I well, mean, it's not was it too I long? Didn't. There it were, too there, long. there were probably some chapters in there that weren't necessary. That's probably true. But I, I liked it a lot. I, I, I really enjoyed that. I just read Neverwhere. I like Neverwhere. And I liked yeah, it. It's fun. I, I it's didn't, a fun I read book. it. I haven't yeah. seen the TV the t- miniseries, this which never I know is aged poorly. Well, so there's things that are great about it, and there are things that are weird about it, and it definitely is low budget. Uh, but what's odd about Neverwhere as a story is that it started as the TV drama, yeah, and then he adapted it into know, a novel, yeah. which is very odd. But um, some of the performances in there are fantastic. The guy who plays the Marquis is great and that's that will uh, that i that's think will patterson hold up joseph, yeah patterson it? joseph who's great in that he's fantastic yes, who was, who was rumored at one point to be a uh a doctor uh, an contender, 11th, yeah. 11th doctor contender and of course islington the angel is peter capaldi yes <laughs> in, um, in the radio adaptation they did this year benedict cumberbatch, benedict yes. cumberbatch. was islington yeah i meant wow. to listen so, i had not listened to that but i i really i love the book i thought he does so, again it's such an interesting because that's really about the permeation between the lines of reality and fantasy right yes. like very very strongly delineated there and that's kind of where damon lives right like that's his that's his wheelhouse sure. but that that was yeah. also re, having read them in the reverse of how when they were written um i also ha- enjoyed the city in the city china mieville kind of feeling with mm-hmm. uh with Neverwhere, because it's that, and I know that there are others. Uh, Mieville wrote a, a book called Unlondon. Uh, there are a bunch of urban fantasy books that play this trope now, but it's almost like you know, Gaiman got there um, a little while before this latest wave with Neverwhere, where it is the there's the London you know, and then there's the magical London that's living you know underground mostly, but just you know in parallel with what's happening on the what we regular people think of as as London and. Um, yeah. I like I like it a lot. I, Nancy Boys is fine. I always remembered uh, the story of Anansi the Spider was something that I really remember clearly learning in childhood. Yeah, um, and so to see that, and that's essentially you know spinoff of American Gods. Uh, but and I liked it, but I loved American Gods and the Graveyard Book. Now oh, that is a book that's just amazing. That is a that is a great piece of work. That might be that might be my favorite of his. Um, mm. and, and, you know, the fact that it's essentially a young adult book, but, and he front loads it with the worst part. The, the yeah. murder happens at the very beginning and everything else after that, it's not so bad. It's not that murder that happened <laughs> at the beginning where the kid's parents get killed, get stabbed by the guy with the big knife. Meh. After that, it's just ghosts and they're friendly ghosts and you know, it's fine. But that beginning, you know, that's, uh, yeah, he he has had an interesting career, hasn't he? He's got his screenplays, and he's got his comics, and he's got stories, and he's got young adult and juvenile fiction, and then he's got adult fiction. TV he is shows and, all yeah. over the place. Mirror yeah. Mask. Yeah, I saw Mirror Mask. Mm-hmm. Yeah, there's a there's a lot there. How, I have Good Omens, and I haven't read it. That's I love Good Terry Omens Pratchett. too. That that was the first Neil Gaiman thing I ever read because I was a huge Terry Pratchett fan starting back in. 
geez, I must have been like 10 or something when I started reading Terry Pratchett. And and somehow I came across that when I was like, well, there's this other guy who writes with Terry Pratchett. Maybe this will still be good, though. Um, and I actually have a, my copy of that is autographed by both of them because I saw them in, in close succession, even though it's my wow. old, like, dog-eared paperback of them. But they, it was, it still feels cool to me to have, like, that. I love that book. It's just, it's, it's such a fascinating melange of the two writers. Um, but there's parts of that book that stick with me to this day, even though I, I haven't read it in like 15, 20 years, probably. Mm. Um, but yeah, and there's there's some line about like a guy with a his his wound from Nam was acting up, and there's a footnote, and it's like he'd gone to Vietnam and slipped in the shower or something like that. <laughs> just a, but that that's a very Terry Pratchett bit. But like it's still like it was it's just a it's a lovely book about the apocalypse. Um, so yeah, I again I'm a huge fan of of. I I have I think devoured almost everything that he has written at least for adults mostly slash young adults. Um, I have two of the volumes of Absolute Sandman sitting on my bottom shelf, and someday we'll complete wow. that collection. But mm. those aren't cheap. No, they're not. Like a hundred bucks a shot. <laughs> well, you, if you can figure out how to do it right, you can get them a little bit cheaper than that. But still, yes, they are expensive. Yeah, but they're gorgeous. It's, the only tough part with them is it's like it's hard to read because it's like they're so big. <laughs> it's like the giant hard, like you know, ten pound hard, hardcover books, and you're like, all right, it's not exactly something you can like take on the train for like light yeah. reading. I've got the Absolute Watchmen, and it's the same thing. Is it's great, but it's it, enormous. The coffee table book. Yeah. Lie, lie on the couch and balance it on your chest, and wake up just before it kills you when you fall when it falls on your face. Essentially, yep. yes. That's basically it. So what else? Uh, what else to say about Ocean at the end of the lane before we move on? Do you have any any well, other? The scene we didn't touch upon, which I I really liked, and my cousin actually was saying it was his favorite scene, was the um, the scene where they bring the ocean to him, and he goes into the mm. ocean, right? Like oh, that's, yeah. that's, that's so that's that, that's the premise of. The, I mean, the story. It's the title, and it's the idea that she calls it a pond or an ocean, even though it's just a pond. And then we, you know, we we finally see we get the payoff of. You know that just how this thing is an ocean when he's he's in it and he has to go in it. They're, they're are they going? They put him in it to protect him. To, yeah. yeah, 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 yeah. And he, but he can see and he knows everything, everything right? in like, the universe, right? Yeah. That if he was going to stay there, the longer he he would stay there, the more diffuse he would become until he was no longer a person or a being or a an intelligence. He would just be spread out yeah you you can't yeah. you can't know everything in the universe without just being the universe so you have to you, you'll you'll you know you're like a little alka seltzer pill you got to get out of there you're gonna just <laughs> dissolve away um and, and that and then of course that's what what happens where letty is you know she has to go off i like too that the the, the family came from across the ocean mm-hmm. to from the, the old country in, yeah so that right. that's that, right. that that's a nice bit of mythology that if the ocean is essentially the universe, then they are from somewhere else. And I, you know, I, without, I, there's a lot of that and just nice touches where it's not overbearing and it's not full of detailed, you know, well, we came from this place and all that. It's just like, they're from somewhere else. You get it. <laughs> That's and and you don't need, need any more than that. What's, That's right. What's funny to me is that there's, you know, we were talking about Terry Pratchett a second ago and there's the old Mrs. Hempstock character, is very reminiscent to me of um, so there's there's a, a series that Terry Pratchett did about these witches, including uh, Granny Weatherwax, who's like the oldest of old witches, and like there's a there's some there's something there with those two characters in some ways. They're very similar, very built from the same mold, 
um, these like the wise old women who are kind of kind of irreverent at the same time, uh, kind of tetchy, but like you know clearly incredibly powerful. Um, and I think that's that. There's interesting something in there, and also the fact that you know so many of the characters. Someone mentioned so many. I think it's some of the blurbs here. I thought that was interesting. Oh yeah, someone comments on all thinking all the women are brilliant, and I was like, that's interesting. This is this is a book that that very much revolves around female characters, despite the the yeah. protagonist being a boy. Um, but the female characters certainly make up the bulk. I mean, the only other male characters I can think of are the father and the minor the lodger, and, yeah. and, and yeah, even he doesn't last very long. No. Um, <laughs> but yeah, and even the father who spends most of the book being sort of a pawn of Ursula Monkton, right? So that's. You know that's an element too. He asks the narrator asks them about the about the women, or I mean about the men. Aren't there aren't there men around? And they're like, why would we? Need, yes, you know, yes. Why would we need we them? We and only, they come sometimes, but they go away again. We only need men to make more men. Yeah, yeah. That why would there. why would we want to do that? <laughs> yeah, it's got a point. <laughs> <laughs> it now it it struck me reading the acknowledgments where he talks about how he wrote it. And he goes into how each night he would read it aloud in bed to his wife. And he, he learned and discovered more about the words while he was reading them aloud. And that had never happened to him before. And I think that really comes through. That's, that's part of why it just sounds, yeah. you know, it's yeah. And I mean, I do that all the time as a playwright, because I'm writing for things to be spoken aloud. And so it was really neat to see how this kind of shifted because it, it does feel different to me from some of his other novels. And I don't know if that's it or if it's the just that the narrator is supposed to be a child, but he's written from children's point of views before. So Well, the narrator is not a child, though. The narrator is an adult recalling being right. a child. Right, right, right. Not that's quite true. the same. That's not quite true. the same. I don't know. I, I read a few chapters of one of my novels uh, while we were – my wife and I were driving back from L.A. to San Francisco and the car radio was broken and she had been reading this novel that I would written. So I just was reading chap the next chapters. Boy, was that an I mean, obviously yeah, it's, very a, time it's a humbling experience. What an incredible oh, yeah. thing to do, because all of your weaknesses are laid bare when you read it uh-huh. aloud. I, I once tried mm-hmm. to record an audiobook of one of my novels and like could not record the first chapter yeah. because I kept changing like no god that sounds terrible I have to change <laughs> yep. that like and then you get to the point where it's like all right either this is going to take a ton of editing or I've got to like go through read it all aloud change everything then go be- back and reread it and record it but then I'm probably just going to find more stuff that I need to change but it does your words take on a totally different character when they're spoken aloud like the oh, the yeah. pacing and the I mean all this but like you know the pacing and the and where you take pauses well, the and all the rhythm, yeah, and, the, and all this stuff. The sound, yeah. Well, one of the things I love, I'll, I'll find a link to this for the show notes because it is it is a lot of fun to read. Elmore Leonard has these 10 rules of writing. And uh, yeah, sure. I, I don't have them memorized, but they're fantastic. And they're he's right. I mean, they work. They're, one of them is, you know, uh, nobody expostulates. They said. Just say yeah, they I know, said. I know he's got the said rule. I've heard that one. You know. And uh, they didn't say it explicitly. They just said it. You don't need your adverbs. Let the adverbs go. You know. And then when you need one, it's there and it's effective. Because um, he does, he, he uses adverbs every now and then, just not very much. And it really helps with that rhythm. And it really helps with, 
you know, because a lot of the things we add in to sound smart when we're writing, you would never say out loud, you you know, and, and when you strip all those things away, suddenly you have something that just, it sounds real. One of the things that bugs me in uh, reading dialogue is when people address each other by names a lot. And that, mm. like, that always sounds fake to me. Yes, Dan. Yes, exactly. <laughs> I know what yes, you're saying. Yes, Jason, Jason, yeah. I, I understand what you're saying, Jason. But, Jason, I don't think you're fully thinking this through, Jason. Um, I don't think I am. Dan. And it feels weird for me to just say that, I like, eight times. I think I am. Uh, but, like, which is interesting when applied to this book where we have a character who never gets named, right? Like, that's kind of on the yeah. other end of the spectrum. But it works, Nobody right? Like, except the Hempstocks get named. The Hempstocks yeah. and Ursula get named. The opal miner, the father, the sister, the mother. Nobody else has oh, a name. Yeah, the sister a... doesn't have a name either, does she? Yeah. yeah. Not that did not even occur to me until right sister. now. That's amazing. Yeah, like yeah. that's inc- it doesn't. It's not. It doesn't bother me. It right? doesn't there's, register. There's a lot of books in which you would be like, all right, what the heck is this guy's name already? But like, <laughs> you know, I haven't seen that uh, that so effectively pulled off since Fight Club. <laughs> So The Ocean at the End of the Lane has already been optioned by Tom Hanks' production company, Playtone. I mean, he'll make a great little boy. <laughs> yeah, that's right. He'll be great. <laughs> no, the, the, well, Tom Hanks' company, which, which obviously was one of the co-producers of like Band of Brothers mm-hmm. um, and From the Earth to the Moon, and they're making – they're the ones who are making American Gods as an HBO series. Mm-hmm. Um, and then they're also doing um, apparently for a feature – they optioned this. So that's, I think, a pre-existing relationship there. Uh, I, the, the last, the new story I've got on this is from February. So obviously there, you know, there's, there's more pre- well, pre-production work. And options that, that's are, interesting. options don't always mean that they don't always lead film. to green lights, but that's right. interesting that, 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 um, that that's where it is. Um, and you know, again, 200, less than 200 pages. This is the kind of story that you do want to make a movie out of because you it's don't right have size. to sh- drop, you know, 70% of it in order to get it's it. Not, to it's not like making Game of Thrones or flipping through the pages really fast, like a Harry Potter book where right. it's like, well, just suffice oh, to say, no. then, then they were over here. You know, I've argued for years that, that a short story makes a better movie than a novel, right? Because a novel is kind of a, in a short story, every word has to count. Movies are short stories. You're right, Movies exactly. Are short stories. TV shows are novels. Right. TV shows are novels. Exactly. Or, com- or right. comic books. Yeah. Yeah, movies are short stories. And so adapting short stories, or in this case, it's a short novel, makes a lot of sense. A novella. A, a novelette. A, no- a novelite. It's novelish. It's, it is novelish. Novelish. A novel. Is it novel? Is it new? Was there novelty? A little bit. I think there was novelty. A little bit, yeah. Of course. It's novelesque. It's novel-esque. Excellent. Well, before uh, before we go, I want to ask you, gentlemen, uh, the musical question that's not actually musical that I like to ask uh, and whenever we talk about books, which is, what are you reading? I'm kind of curious. Reading. What other? <laughs> what are you reading? <laughs> oh, yeah. We should get Lex Friedman to do a jingle for what are you reading? He would totally do that. Then we couldn't play it because it would be we w- would want to listen to it but he would do it for us just imagine in your head what that nobody would sound asked like. it to do it because then we'll have to play it 
Uh, but Fortunately, I'm just curious. It, it's it's nice because we read lots of things, and we did. This was a short book. I'm sure there. Were, Dan even mentioned that he had been reading another book before he started I, reading amazingly. the ocean at the end of the land. And I started reading another book directly after finishing oh, the ocean. Man, you just <laughs> you tearing it up. <laughs> when I'm on vacation, I tell you, yeah, I read like I, a, especially I, when there's no internet. I read like crazy. <laughs> Ooh, yeah, that's book. It's book. This is my uh, family. My family. So we have this. This uh, my uncle's got this place in the Finger Lakes, and there's no internet there, and the very little cell signal. The lakes are made of fingers <laughs> <laughs> my family which i mean is primarily made up of of librarians and a lot of teachers yeah. and we yeah. sit around and read a lot and my my cousin's husband once commented after like walking into a room with like six people reading books like man you must really drive your neighbors crazy with that sound of flipping pages <laughs> Dan, can I come with you to the Finger Lakes sometime? That it, sounds like the best vacation ever. It's pretty Wait, awesome. Pretty I'm not going to lie. It. It's great. Oh, my God. Um, I would love it. It's very quiet. And then, yeah. So, um, so I finished. What have you been reading? Um, before that, I finished the second book in Ben Aronovich's uh, Rivers of London series. There's your urban fantasy set in London. I was going to drop his name earlier. Yes. Uh, I read. So, I read the um, Rivers of London, which I think is marketed in the U.S. under uh, Midnight Riot, which is kind of a not as good title in my opinion. But. Uh, I read the second book, which is called Moon Over Soho, which I liked. I like both of those books. They're they're not they don't quite. My favorite urban fantasy book remains the Mike Carey's Felix Castor series, which is awesome. And this is this is fun, but like doesn't quite get up there for me. I, the, in part because the Felix Castor, what makes those series great is they're basically such a tone perfect noir set in London. Except in, imagine if Philip Marlowe were an exorcist in London. Like it's just, it's brilliant. It's incredibly well done. Um, but these are still fun, and um, they're kind of they deal with a uh, a young man who is a police constable, and in his first book, in the first book, he encounters a ghost. And then somehow gets recruited to work under the last sort of remaining wizard who works for the Metropolitan Police, who's like a, you know, a detective chief inspector. Um, and so he's an apprentice wizard, as a, but he's also a police constable. Um, so that's fun. And then I picked up, uh, before I left, I bought a paperback, which I hadn't bought in a long, I realized I had not bought a paperback book in so long that my ebooks have become my paperbacks. I will still buy occasionally ah. books in hardcover. Like I bought the Neil Gaiman book in hardcover. But if I want something that's kind of like the quick disposable read, like I usually buy ebooks. But I bought a paperback of the latest book in the in Naomi Novik's Temeraire series. Oh, I have uh, book one of that. Yes. On my Kindle. The latest one is called Crucible of Gold. Um, I'm about half Dragons. halfway to two thirds of the way through it, probably. I, I read everything else in the series, but it's been many years since I read the last one. So I kind of like, but it's it's. It's pretty good in terms of the ability to sort of pick it up even years later and be like, oh, yeah, I kind of remember who the main characters this are. And she's she's quite a good writer, and she does a great job of capturing that sort of, um, you know, the C.S. Forrester, Patrick O'Brien-like uh, element of the, the swashbuckling nautical tales. But, like, she goes interesting places with those books, which I didn't think that she would, both quote-unquote literally in terms of, like, they spend a lot of time sort of globetrotting, as well as... Um, it could have been just sort of adventure fun series, but she actually gets into some issues that I thought were really interesting in terms of like, well, these dragons are sentient. Hmm. Are they basically slaves? Like, what's the deal with that? Um, so it, it gets a little more a little more depth than I thought it would originally. And so this is like the sixth book in the series. I think the seventh one is coming out pretty soon. So those are fun. I enjoy them. All right. I'll, I'm, I've got the first one on my Kindle. It's ready to go. I had enough people recommend it that I, I had to buy it. David, what uh, what have you been reading? Anything interesting? Well, I've been reading. I've been doing research for something that involves magic and magicians. So, 
um, when I'm not reading fiction, I'm reading this book called Slights of Mind, which I know Lex Friedman has read, actually, because we've talked about it. And it's about, um, it's not just about optical illusion, but it's how illusions work and how our minds try to rationalize them. And especially how we know um, that a magic trick is a trick. You know, we know we're being distracted, and yet we still go for it. We still accept it. Why? And so it's really interesting. And it's, it talks with Penn and Teller a lot and a couple of other magicians and pickpockets. And uh, so it's, it's really fascinating research. Um, then on the fiction side, I've got this book called Summer and Bird by Catherine Catmull, which uh, my friend who just read Ocean as well, he said, if you really liked the last two chapters of that, Try reading a book that's all that. Right. Oh my God. You know, it's a little more poetic. It's a little more fantasy oriented than this necessarily, but um, he claims it's very much in line with that. So I'm giving it a try. And then I've got The Last Policeman by Ben Winters sitting on my Kindle, which I, th I think it won an, a mystery award actually, but it's about a cop in it, it, it's a pre-apocalyptic story where there's Aren't they this, all? <laughs> there's like this, this asteroid coming that they know is going to hit the earth and destroy it. And so all these people have, you know, quit their jobs and they're going off to do whatever they want in the last few months before it hits. And there's a murder. And this is his chance to step up and be a policeman, to be a real detective instead of just a policeman. So he goes and tries to solve this murder. And it's, it's the first of a trilogy and the second one just came out apparently. And um, so again, I've had, you know, like five or six people, including Scott McNulty, oh. say that it, the first one was very good. And uh, so I was like, all right, I'll give it a try. I read Accelerando by Charles Strauss, hmm. which I really liked. And Charles Strauss is funny because some of his stuff I really like and some of his stuff leaves me kind of cold. Um, his his halting state series that's set in the near future in Scotland, an independent Scotland as part of the EU, they're fine. They don't really thrill me. Um, I like Saturn's Children, which is his wild um, sex bot takes a grand tour of the solar system novel that was nominated for a Hugo. Accelerando, I really liked. It's a it's a little bit older. Um, that's one of because, his more well regard like that's sort of one of his flagship novels yeah it's say. really good um i guess published in 2006 it does feel a little bit uh the first few chapters he's doing a lot of jargon that is recognizable um that that is cultural references and now they're a little bit dated they're mm. seven years dated sure. um but but as you might have, as you might guess from the title uh things accelerate rapidly and you leave the the weakest chapters that are set in the near, very near future behind. And it gets increasingly weird as it goes. Um, and it tries to portray in a way that Werner Vinge and a bunch of other writers who've tried to talk about the singularity when, when uh, acceleration of, of, uh, of human uh, growth is exponential. And it's like you humans won't even be able to understand it. It'll be, things will be advancing so fast. And, and so if you can't portray that, you're like, all right. I mean, like one of my favorite Vinji novels, he basically jumps everybody ahead in time, a hundred years and there's nobody left. And they're like, Oh, the singularity must've happened. Oh, well, and then they continue on. Right. So in Accelerando, Strauss actually like shows you, tries to show you what the singularity would be like if you were a person who was living through it. And 
I think he does a pretty good job. It's not, I mean, it's not perfect because it's a very difficult concept. He does have a, a little bit of a plot to string you along as well. It does a lot of the same things that I, I sort of feel like Kim Stanley Robinson was trying to do uh, in his Hugo nominated uh, 2312. Uh, but what I really liked about Accelerando and people I know um, who listen to our Hugo cast know that I didn't really like 2312. I felt like Accelerando did all sorts of things that, that, Kim Stanley Robinson just failed to do with 2312 that that for a guy who gets tagged a lot of times as being a uh, Strauss as being a guy who's a you know a tech guy and he's more interested in a lot of the technology stuff than the than the people I think that's one of the I I think that might be a knock on him is that is that he doesn't always have these his characters feeling characters right but and yet in Accelerando like people are people in the future and they have passions and they have loves and there's there's even in these i mean there is a scene in accelerando where there is an entire culture that is running in a in a virtual reality simulation on a little chip that's in a spaceship the size of a soda can that's halfway to alpha centauri on a giant solar sail and yet there is still petty human jealousy and misunderstandings and all sorts of things happening in the virtual reality in the soda can because people are people. And I like that, that, that you can, you can talk about the future and completely indescribable social change and technological change and still have a, a novel with a real beating human heart, which, uh, Accelerando I think has. So I liked it and it's, it is weird, but, um, but I think good weird. So I I like that. And then the other one I would mention is I'm reading Roger Ebert's memoir, life itself. Um, he is a, he is a really good writer. Speaking of people who are good writers and uh, a lot of that was in blog form in various points on his site, and, but there's also a lot of original material, and it's all put together. It's not like a collection of blog posts. It is written in chapters about his life, and it's fascinating because even as just a portrait of a, uh, an American f- from the Midwest in the middle, you know, from the middle of the 20th century, and looking at that, and then looking at uh, sort of the height of newspaper journalism, and uh, it's a fascinating read by a guy who is, re- you know, a really good writer. And, uh, you know, it's funny. We talk about a lot of books on this podcast. The thing that, that strikes me more than anything else, more than the characters, more than the story, more than the plots is if you can get somebody who can write, who like has a, has a great style and tone, I'll follow them almost anywhere because those people are not that easy to find. You know, we were saying sometimes you follow along with a writer because they like you like their plots, you like their characters, you like their sense of humor, and then there are those writers that you think they just got it. And Roger Ebert, of all you know people, we think of him as the two thumbs up, you know, movie critic guy. He is such a great writer, and in some ways, I think we didn't realize it until, or most people didn't realize it until he started blogging after he lost his voice. Um, anyway, great fun, and that's why when we were in the Midwest, we went to Steak and Shake. Uh, because inside it must be right. And I'm from California. I've never been to a snake and shake before, but we went because of Roger Ebert. So there. And so, yeah. No, yeah, we had a burger. That's sitting, that's sitting on my Kindle right now, in fact. It's good. It's good. I mean, I read it. I sort of read it in bits because you can just sort of read a few chapters and then go read a novel and then come back and read a few more chapters. And uh, it's enjoyable. All right. I think we got to the end, uh, to the ocean at the end of the lane, at the po- <laughs> at end of the podcast. Have, have we been here before? So many times, so many times. Podcast about it, but yet we don't remember it. Eh. Oh, it's a it's a book. Let's we'll find a book. 
Yeah. In the ocean at the end of the lane, at the end of the po- the monster at the end of the <laughs> The monster at the podcast. end of the ocean at the end of the lane at the end of yeah. the podcast. <laughs> I'm very confused now. All right. Well, this was fun. And I guess I guess if we had to summarize it, we would say we lo- we really liked uh perhaps even loved neil gaiman's the ocean at the end of the lane got a lot of hype he's a very well-known author guess what it's good he's a good writer that's why he's well known not because of hype not because of marketing it's because he's a really good writer right that's about right you you, yeah in a nutshell all right excellent well that's it for uh this edition of the incomparable and I want to thank my guests, my my two guests who excellently went through Neil Gaiman and the ocean at the end of the lane. Dan Morin, thank you, as always. Always a pleasure to actually read something and be on a podcast about it. It's nice. It's nice to read books, isn't it? <laughs> it is great. It is. Especially on vacation. When you yeah. Just air through I'm all over that. Finger Lakes. I'm coming. I'm going back. I'm, gonna, I'm going back I'm on just, vacation next week. Man. That's and, not true, uh, but I wish. No, yeah, in your mind. Uh, David Lore, thank you, too, for being here. Thank you. Always a pleasure. Always a pleasure. Very nice to have you here. And thank you, everybody out there in podcast land, for listening to us talk about books and be silly at the same time. That's pretty much the charter of the incomparable. So thank you for listening. And until next time, I remain Jason Snell, your host. Goodbye. Goodbye.